Again, we find ourselves in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, and this morning, in a few minutes, we will look at verses 32 through 35. Before we do that, however, may I just say that, again, these are amazing times in which we live. Amazing times. We can literally see the prophetic stage being set right before our eyes. We see that which has been predicted concerning the day when eventually the Islamic and Arab countries and Russia and others will come down upon Israel. We see Israel at the forefront of so much of the problems here today in the world. And I find it interesting that we see Iran, for example, ready to, as they say, wipe Israel off of the face of the earth. And we know that someday, according to Scripture, that Israel will be placed permanently in her homeland. We don't know if that is, if she's permanently there now. She may be run out again, but someday she will be there. In fact, I was just reading this morning in Amos 9.14. The prophet tells us, And I will bring back my exiled people Israel, the Lord says. And then he went on to say, I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them. So again, it's just exciting to be living in these days, but it's also exciting to be able to open up the Word of God and to glean some of the marvelous truths that he has given us with respect to Bible prophecy. I think of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.14. You will recall his passionate plea to the believers and therefore to all of us to, to be like him. And he said to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he reminded all of us in verses 20 through 21, that our citizenship is in where? It's in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. Dear friends, we must never lose sight of this blessed hope that we have, that Jesus is coming again. This is the hope of the saints down through redemptive history, certainly since the days of the New Testament when they understood that the Messiah would be the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship, the official registry of all of the saints is in heaven. This is not our home, right? Our names are written there. Other believers that we know and love that have gone on before us are there. Certainly our Savior is there. Our inheritance is there. Hopefully you've been storing up treasure there. That's where we're longing to go. And as we sang a few minutes ago, what a day that will be when we see our Lord. And therefore, as the Apostle Paul tells us, we need to eagerly wait for that day when we will be transformed, when we will literally be liberated from this body of sin that we find ourselves incarcerated within. Because the Word of God tells us in 1 John 3, 2, that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. 
So, folks, as we study these great prophetic truths, I, I hope that, that it will stir within you a great sense of excitement. Because, again, someday we are going to be liberated from the very presence of sin, from this body of sin in which we now find ourselves, and we will be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine, as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, what it will be like to be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye? Won't that be an incredible time for those who are raptured away, who are snatched away? Can you imagine what it will be like, as Jude 24 tells us, to stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy? Can you imagine, as we read in Revelation 20, what it will be like to rule and reign upon a renovated earth for a thousand years? Absolutely inconceivable. Well, I hope this is the passionate preoccupation of your life. I hope you are all living in the light of His imminent return. And I can only pray that our study of the prophetic Scriptures will, will somehow heighten your anticipation of that day when you will see your Savior face to face in all of His splendor. And certainly for those without Christ, my prayer is that you will bow before Him in humble repentance. Otherwise, when you see Him, He will not be your Savior but He will be your judge. Well, certainly the disciples lived with such anticipation. However, they were confused, as we have studied. The disciples were confused. They didn't understand that because of Israel's rejection, the kingdom would be postponed. That Jerusalem would continue to struggle under the heel of Gentile domination until this very Jesus would end their world supremacy. And may I remind you that the Gentile supremacy really began with the end of the Old Testament theocratic kingdom. That's when it ended, or that's when it began. But it will end someday when the Messiah King returns in power and great glory and restores that kingdom to Israel as the prophets have indicated now, the disciples, of course, had no idea that Jesus was about to leave. They had no comprehension of the church age in which we live now, that it would somehow intervene between the time they were living and his ultimate parousia, his ultimate revealing of himself. And it's interesting when we look at Matthew's gospel. And again, this is just by way of, of kind of introduction to, to the text that we'll look at this morning. When you look at Matthew's gospel, you see at least six parables here in, in this area where, where we're studying, and, and especially right before chapter 24 and, and in chapter 24 and 25. You see six parables describing um, the details about the coming messianic kingdom. The first three were directed to the, the Jewish religious leaders that had challenged his authority you read them, for example, in Matthew 21, you have the parable of the two sons and then the parable of the landowner in the vineyard and the parable of the king's marriage feast in, in Matthew 22. But the remaining three parables were given to the disciples here in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. And we're going to look at one of them here today in verses 32 through 35. You have the parable of the budding fig tree. And then in chapter 25, verses 1 through 13, you have the parable of the ten virgins and then in, in Matthew 25, 14 through 29, you have the parable of the talents. 
And all but possibly the, the, the first of these, uh, of this first of these six parables, the one with the two sons, all of the rest of them really picture a future kingdom. Dear friends, I, 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 it pictures a, a, a divine king who's going to come in sudden judgment, uh, a king who will come and and judge the wicked and reward the righteous. A time when the mediatorial kingdom of the Old Testament prophecy is finally realized. A time when all of the royal blessings once promised to the nation Israel will be poured out upon her. The church will be snatched away and ultimately God will fulfill His covenantal promises to His people, the Jew. This will be the time when the Scriptures tell us the fullness of the Gentiles is over. Israel's time of suffering will be will be passed someday. It will be a time when her judgment will be be over, when her spiritual eyes will suddenly be opened and she will behold the one whom she has pierced, as promised in Romans 11, verse 26 and verse 27, a time when all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob and this my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, I want you to understand, in Jesus' day, although most of Judaism was apostate, I say most, not all of them, but most of them were apostate, they nevertheless had a a very accurate understanding of eschatology, the study of the end times. It was rather well chiseled. And they had this without the help of the New Testament. It's very interesting. In fact, in Emil Schurer's classical work entitled A History of the Jewish People in the Time of Jesus, he outlines their understanding of, of the eschaton, the, the Greek word, the, the last times. And, and you, will, you will soon see as I read them that the concepts that they, that they derive from the Old Testament bear an undeniable resemblance to the premillennial themes and motifs that we have been studying those studying those that have been that are that are presented in the new testament and in that book he outlines just the, the basic essence of jewish eschatology in jesus day and here's what they believe and i'll just give you the bullets first of all there's going to be a coming tribulation and confusion they call that messianic woes elijah is going to is elijah will appear before the messiah the appearance of the messiah will come the final attack on Messiah will then occur. There's going to be destruction of the powers against the Messiah. There will be a restoration of the Jews according to Ezekiel 40 through 48. And by the way, in case you don't remember Ezekiel 40 through 48, that is really um, the climax of Ezekiel's prophecy where he provides explicit details concerning the millennial reign of Christ. And then they went on to believe that, that um, there would be a return of the dispersed Israel. Then there will be the kingdom glory with Jerusalem at the center. And then a re renewal of the world. And finally, general resurrection and final judgment. So they had, again, a, very, a fairly accurate understanding of eschatology. And when I was pondering this, it, it's, it's amazing to me to think that someday... During Daniel's 70th week, during the, the time of the tribulation, there will be many desperate people who are trying to understand prophecy because the world's falling apart, as we've studied. 
The world would just be falling apart. And they're wanting to understand what's going on. And in the midst of unimaginable chaos and devastation upon the earth, many Jews and Gentiles, for that matter, will, will refine their ancient eschatology by re-examining the Old Testament prophecies in light of New Testament revelation. In fact, God spoke to Daniel at the close of his revelation to Daniel concerning the end of the age. And here's what he told Daniel in, in chapter 12, verse 2. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. The Hebrew verb for back and forth, and in some translations it's to and fro, is really a verb that denotes someone who is desperately searching for something. And, and it also tells us that knowledge is going to increase. What are they desperately searching for? For prophetic truths especially those here in, in Daniel's prophecies, not to mention all of the other parallel prophecies, uh, even the ones that we're studying here, Matthew 24 um, and, and chapter 25 and the Olivet Discourse of Jesus. And so um, it's amazing to think that someday many people are going to be pouring over the prophetic scriptures. Who knows? Some of them may listen to these tapes. You never know. And others like them. But it's an amazing thought to me. So, we return to Matthew's Gospel. And you will recall that after his scathing denunciation of their disbelief, and the Jews' disbelief in chapter 23, and then his ominous prediction of their temple's demise, Jesus concludes with a message of hope. And then he very quietly slips away with his disciples from the multitudes. And then with the disciples in uh, chapter 24, we, we begin to see that the disciples naturally have some questions about what Jesus has said. They want to know the when and the what that he's been talking about. They want to know the nature and the duration of Israel's desolation and the sign of his coming. And Jesus gave them six very specific signs. He called them birth pangs uh, in verse 8. He also described the sign of the abomination that causes desolation that we've studied in detail. That will occur just before his coming just before his appearing. And then after he elaborated on the sequence of events that will lead up to his glorious appearing, appearing that unmistakable sign of his very presence that will be visible to all the world, notice what he says in our text for this morning, beginning in verse 32. Now, learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So here Jesus gives yet another very uncomplicated parable to help the disciples understand that when these signs that, that he's been describing begin to emerge, the parousia is going to occur. The parousia, remember, that's the, the manifestation, the, the glorious presence and return of the Lord Jesus Christ, which, again, is the dominant theme of the, of the discourse. And so he's speaking now to the disciples, which, of course, are 
um, really representatives of the Jewish remnant that will be alive during that time when the Lord returns. Now, notice what he says in verse 32. He begins by saying, now learn. And by the way, in the original language, this denotes more than just kind of a sit down and get some, some basic intellectual understanding. But rather it denotes a wholehearted reception. I, w- I want you to absolutely understand and live consistently with the truths that I'm about to tell you. I want this to motivate your life. By the way, the same term was used in Philippians 4.11 when Paul said that he learned to be content in whatever circumstances God had placed him. In other words, Paul grasped the glorious truths of divine sovereignty to such an extent that, that his understanding shaped his life. That no matter what God brought his way, he could relax in God's sovereign care and he wouldn't complain and so on. So likewise, Jesus is saying to the disciples now, I want you to learn the parable from the fig tree. And not just the disciples, but all who will read these words in years to come. So let this simple yet very important analogy regulate your life. Now, what are they to learn? Well, certainly, ultimately, Jesus is answering the questions that the disciples had posed to him early in chapter 24. But I want to divide these verses into three very simple sections that hopefully will give you a a real simple outline. We're going to look, first of all, at the season of his return. Secondly, the span of the signs, the season of his return, the span of the signs, and then the surety of his return. Three S's, the season, span, and surety. Now, first of all, as we look at the season of his return, notice what he says in verse 32. Here's what they're to learn from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Well, this is simple to understand. Whether it's a fig tree or or any other kind of tree, everyone knows that in the springtime, when the sap begins to rise, the branches of a tree begin to, to soften and they become pliable and tender, and the leaves begin to bud. You see those little buds coming out? And that's a sure sign that summer is right around the bend here. Even so, verse 33, even so, you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Well, what things? Well, all all of the things that he's been describing, all of the signs, all of the signs that we've looked at that Jesus has So graphically described. And he's basically saying, even as you know, summer is near when a a fig tree begins to bud in the springtime. Likewise, when you see these signs, recognize that he is near right at the door. By the way, the pronoun he can also be translated it. It is near. It referring to the glorious appearing of the king and the inauguration of the kingdom. In fact, in Luke chapter 21, verse 31 The parallel to this passage, Jesus declares the kingdom of God is near. So it's like when you see these things, the kingdom of God is near. By the way, as a footnote, there's no contradiction just because Luke records something a little bit different than Matthew. You must understand that the inspired authors are are quoting Jesus who undoubtedly discussed and elaborated these things uh, beyond the record of one gospel writer's recollection. And so the Holy Spirit very graciously gives us uh, an expanded understanding of that which the Lord has said so that we can grasp these important truths. 
So Jesus helps us understand the general time period or the season of these events. In other words, when you see these signs, know that it's about to happen. And next he goes on to describe the duration or the span of these signs that lead up to his appearing. Notice the span of the signs, secondly, beginning in verse 34. He says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That is, these signs are not going to be stretched out over thousands of years or even hundreds of years, but they're going to occur within the lifespan of of the generation alive at that time. By the way, there are other prophecies that give us great precision, great mathematical precision with respect to the length of Daniel's 70th week, that 70th heptad. It's going to be seven years. We read that in Daniel 9, for example, and even in the the, the last half of the tribulation, which Jesus called the great tribulation in Matthew 24, 21. We know that it's going to last three and a half years. And there's there's great detail given to these time frames described, for example, in Daniel 7, 25 and and. and in Revelation 11, 2 and 3 and chapter 12, verse 6. By the way, I would, I would humbly add at this point that when you see the great detail with respect to the, the time periods, not to mention measurements and things like this, I believe it just gives further evidence that these prophecies are not to be spiritualized. They're not to be treated as some mysterious allegory and somehow forced into the events of A.D. 70. So the span or the duration of these signs, the birth pangs, or all of these events that Jesus has been describing, are going to occur before those witnessing them pass away during their generation. Those who experience the birth pangs, shall we say, will experience or witness the birth. Now, it's important for you to understand this. Throughout his discourse, Jesus has been addressing those who will be living in the future, not merely his disciples. And I'm going to elaborate on this in a moment. You see in verse 4, he says, See to it that no one misleads you. Verse 6, You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. Verse 9, Then they will deliver you to tribulation. You will be hated by all the nations on account of my name. Verse 15, When you see the abomination of desolation. Verse 25, Behold, I have told you in advance, and so on. So Jesus has been consistently prophesying to a future generation, even as Daniel did and the other prophets. Now, some will argue that the phrase this generation refers to the Jewish race that is not going to pass away until their Messiah comes and ushers in the kingdom. But I would humbly argue that that seems contrived to me. It seems confusing a bit obtuse and even pointless. Of course, the Jewish remnant will be alive when the Messiah comes. We we can understand that. And if Jesus wanted to say that, he would have simply stated Israel or my people or something to that effect will not pass away. Others will argue that since Jesus admitted in Matthew 24 and verse 36 that he didn't know the day or the hour, that only the Father knows, that this generation was just a bad guess, that he just guessed and and he was really referring to the disciples generation, but but he didn't know for sure. Well, I have a real hard time with that so much for the divine authority of the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, if that's the case. Now, indeed, during the time of his incarnation, 
The Lord Jesus deliberately and temporarily set aside certain aspects of his divine attributes. And indeed, in his incarnation, he admittedly did not know the specific moment of his future of arrival. But he did know the signs that were going to lead up to it. And that's what's at stake here. Now, others will argue that this generation refers to all who are or all who were alive in Jesus day, rather popular position. Thus, those people, including the disciples, experienced all of the events that Jesus is describing here. And they experienced this during the time of A.D. 70 when Rome conquered Jerusalem. Now, as a footnote, I fear, as I've said before, that this position is fueled by a commitment to preserve the philosophical system of covenantal theology more than exegetical and contextual considerations. If one, for example, begins with what I believe to be an errant position that would insist that somehow the church has replaced Israel, then one must interpret all of the prophetic literature in such a way as to avoid any possibility that Israel as a nation will ever again be the undeserved recipients of divine blessing. And so, therefore, if that is your philosophical presupposition, then naturally when you come to the prophetic literature, you're going to have to spiritualize much of it in order to somehow maintain your position consistently. One respected proponent of this view, R.C. Sproul, whom, by the way, I have enormous respect for with respect to his soteriology, but I would vastly differ with him in this regard. He would argue, with regard to all that we've been studying here in Matthew 24, and I quote, The Olivet Discourse contains a continuous and homogenous prophecy regarding the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the parousia of Christ. Several signs, he goes on to say, will portend these events, the appearance of false Christs, false prophets, great social disturbances, natural calamities and convulsions, the persecution of the apostles, the apostasy of professed believers, and the publication of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. He goes on to say that the Great Tribulation refers to the siege of Jerusalem. The Olivet Discourse is not about the end of the world, but about the end of a definite time period, the, quote, age of the Jews or the Jewish dispensation. Finally, he argues that the graphic language used by Jesus to describe the attending events is metaphorical and consistent with the poetry of fervor used by Old Testament prophets, end quote. Well, there are numerous reasons why the dispensational position would not agree with our brother who would be called a moderate preterist. And I've talked about this in some of our other series, so I won't get into that again. Certainly some preterism goes to the point of being utterly apostate, but certainly his would not be in that category. And I've detailed a lot of this in, in part two of this, which will ultimately be an eight-part series. This is part seven. I've detailed this in part two when I gave you a series of reasons why what is depicted here in Matthew 24 is future, way beyond the events of A.D. 70, so I'll not repeat that. But bottom line, please understand that nothing that occurred in A.D. 70 in Jerusalem compares to the universal scope 
and the cataclysmic severity of the staggering events that Jesus has described here and other prophets. Furthermore, given the exceedingly more horrific slaughter of the Jews, for example, in the Holocaust and even at other times in history, how are we to interpret Jesus' words in and, and, and Matthew 24, 21 through 22, if all of these events occurred in A.D. 70. This is, this is where Jesus said, There will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. Well, if, that's, if it all happened in A.D. 70, how do you explain the Holocaust? Because that far exceeded what happened in A.D. 70. And unless those days, Jesus said, had been cut short, no life would have been spared or it would have been saved. And also, I would humbly add that such a view as the preterist view really discounts the undeniable parallels in content and even in sequence that's found in the book of Revelation that was written in 96 A.D., many years after A.D. 70. John MacArthur adds perhaps the greatest single refutation of that view when he said, and I quote, Most important of all, Jesus certainly did not appear then, in other words, in A.D. 70. It is strange logic, he goes on to say, to argue that Jesus could accurately foretell the destruction of Jerusalem some 40 years hence, but be mistaken about his returning at that time. Or if, as some suggest, the teaching here was merely symbolic and allegorical, with the limited destruction of Jerusalem representing the vastly greater destruction of the end time, what event in A.D. 70 could possibly have symbolized Jesus' return, which is the main subject of the discourse. So, again, I believe that the generation of which Jesus refers is that generation of people living during that time of the tribulation. Now, the question arises, well, what will be the makeup of this future generation? Well, there's essentially two groups of people that have two opposing views regarding the makeup of this generation. And let me say parenthetically, forgive me if I'm being a bit technical, but I'm responding to some of your questions and sometimes I've got to be much more technical. And as I say, I can teach and some other times I get to preach. Today I'm more teaching, so you just have to bear with me. But there's two groups of people that, uh, that really have a different understanding of the nature of, the genera- of that future generation. That would be the post-tribulationalists and the pre-tribulationalists. The post-tribulational view, which, by the way, has several competing camps with varying positions. That particular view argues that the rapture of the church will occur sometime towards the latter part or perhaps even at the very end of the tribulation, thus post-tribulation. Therefore, believers who are alive during the tribulation will make up the generation that Jesus described. And that could be our generation. We could find here before long that the, the Antichrist begins to arise and we begin to see all these prophetic events begin to occur and so on and so forth. So they would argue that, that the generation refers to believers who are alive during the tribulation uh, will make up that generation. Um, they would also therefore say that those who, uh, if I can put it this way, those who survive this horrific seven-year Holocaust will finally be raptured sometime toward the end, maybe at the very end, and then almost immediately return to earth with the Lord, 
for his second coming and the establishment of the millennial kingdom. Well, that's the post-tribulational view. As you know, I don't hold that view. I hold the pre-tribulational view, and I will explain that in a moment. But the, in essence, the pre-tribulational view basically says, and, and again, I believe this is the most biblically defensible position, we would argue that the generation that Jesus described will not include any believers of the current church age because they've all been raptured before the seven-year tribulation, hence pre-tribulation. Now, in part three of this series, I discussed why I believe the church will be translated or raptured or snatched away before that seven-year period, Daniel's 70th week, begins. And I'll direct your attention to that particular message. But I will briefly review some of those reasons because it is germane to this issue here in verse 34. Let me give you just a kind of a bird's eye view of why I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. First of all, I believe that only a pre-tribulational rapture preserves the New Testament doctrine of imminency, that the Lord could come at any time, which I believe is a doctrine that is essential to a proper understanding of the doctrine of sanctification. And I've elaborated on that before, and I'll not do that again. Secondly, I believe it because of the specific promises that God gave the church saying that they will not be exposed to this time of judgment. For example, in Revelation 3, verse 10, he says, because to the church at Philadelphia, he says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world. By the way, that can be translated literally the inhabited earth. In other words, it's something far beyond just something localized with the church at Philadelphia. It will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. And as I've taught before, these promises are relevant to all churches, not just the church at Philadelphia. And you Greek students will understand. He uses the term tereso ek. He's saying that, that you're going to be kept from the hour of trial. He did not use the preposition N in Greek, which is I-N in English, nor did he use the preposition dia, which means through. He didn't use any of that, dia with the genitive case or anything like that. If he had, then clearly that would indicate there would be some type of miraculous preservation through or in the midst of this hour of trial. But he didn't use any of that. And frankly, that would make no sense to me. Why would he preserve saints through the consequences of this great catastrophe, all of these judgment, and many of them are still going to die a martyr's death? That doesn't make sense to me. And again, Jesus used a similar phrase in John 12, 27, when he was praying to the Father, save me from this hour. He used the same exact Greek phrase, not save me through it. Makes no sense. Also in Revelation, the promise to keep them from testing is not some localized Philadelphia church only tribulation, but rather it is one that will come upon the whole world, the entire the testing of the entire inhabited earth, all those who dwell upon the earth. Now, some will say, well, yes, but the church has always suffered persecution. Oh, I have no argument with that. They have and they will. But dear friends, nothing that is comparable to the eschatological judgments of the great day of divine wrath that is described in the prophecies with respect to Daniel's 70th week. Nothing like that. 
And so again, the argument that the church will endure the tribulation holocaust by some kind of miraculous intervention simply does not stand the test for me of Revelation 3.10. A third reason why I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture is that the church, interestingly enough, is, is mentioned on earth in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And also in chapters 4 and 5, the church is described in heaven. But from chapter 6 on, where you have all of the graphic description of tribulation judgments, there's no further mention of the church. Now, I realize that's a nuance, but so too is the doctrine of the Trinity. And I feel it's a very important nuance, a very important inference. And as I've said before, in the, Re- the book of Revelation, John uses the Greek term ekklesia 21 times. That's the church, the called out ones. He uses that 21 times. 20 of them are in reference to the seven churches mentioned in the first three introductory chapters. And that's always in connection with churches on earth, never in connection with saints in heaven. And never does the term ecclesia then appear in chapters 4 through 19 in the discussion of all the judgments. It's just not there. And to me, this would be a very odd omission if, in fact, the ecclesia, the called out ones, were present during that period of judgment upon the earth. Now, although no references of ecclesia on earth in, 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 are found in Revelation 4 through 19, we do find three fascinating references to a vast body of saved individuals in heaven each one being designated by terms used to describe the ecclesia during the church age. For example, in Revelation 4 through 5, we read of the 24 elders. I believe a description of the raptured church. Secondly, in Revelation 13, 6, we discover that the Antichrist blasphemes three distinct objects of his hatred, which would be, number one, God, his name, and his tabernacle. And then he talks about those who dwell in heaven. And then thirdly, in Revelation 19, 1 through 9, we read of the bride who has made herself ready for the Lamb. So, while there's no references again to the ecclesia on earth in chapters 4 through 19 of the book of Revelation, we do find references to these saved individuals in heaven. A fourth reason why I believe in a pre-trib rapture is that it seems strange to me that if the church was supposed to and destined to go through this unbelievable holocaust, why do we not have any New Testament instruction concerning how we're to function during this unprecedented time of persecution? That seems odd to me. A fifth reason why I hold the pre-trib position is because it's in keeping with the Jewish marriage traditions where the groom prepares a place for a bride, he comes to receive her unannounced and so on. And Jesus speaks of this of this concept in the New Testament. Certainly he speaks of coming for his bride in John 14, 2 verses 2 through 3, which I believe is another uh, veiled description here of the rapture. Remember, this is where he says in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Who's the you? Well, his bride. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, friends, as I read that, there's nothing here that speaks of Christ coming in judgment, coming in power and great glory to destroy the wicked. No, he's coming to snatch away his bride. he's, He's coming to celebrate 
with us the, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is that time when we receive our rewards in heaven, the judgment seat of Christ. And then after that, the glorified church returns with the Lord Jesus Christ in the second coming to establish His kingdom. A sixth reason why I hold to the pre-trib position is what I call the quick turnaround rapture problem. You see, in the post-trib position, you have basically the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus, coming for his bridal church. And the bridal church um, um, meets the groom in the air. And then supposedly we go immediately with him to this place that he's prepared for her. And then suddenly we immediately turn around and we come back to earth. That, 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 that doesn't make sense to me, especially in light of what we just read in John 14:3. He says, you know, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also for a few minutes, for a few hours, for a few days, whatever. It seems like it's something far greater than that. A seventh reason why I hold this position is that although God's economy in dealing with Israel finds numerous fulfillments in the church, I, 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 I certainly understand that. Nevertheless, Daniel's 70th week that we've, that we've studied is distinctly Jewish in its context, pertaining to the covenants of Israel. They cannot be describing anything in the church age. Now I ask you, why would the first 69 weeks of Daniel's 70th week prophecy concern the nation Israel, but the very last one is supposed to be focused on the church? Doesn't make any sense to me. You see, this is the time of Jacob's trouble, according to Jeremiah 30 and verse 7. This is a period of unprecedented oppression for Israel. This is the time the whole context describes her, her final restoration. It is not the time of the bride's trouble. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. Moreover, Jesus clearly indicates in Matthew 24, verses 15 and 16, and Mark 13, 14, that the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy is to be the template for the chronological sequencing of all of the prophecies, the beginning of the birth pangs here in Matthew 24. You see, friends, again, these are pre-kingdom judgments consistent with God's purposes and plan for Israel, not the church. I see two very distinct and different economies that God works Think about this as well. The prophetic literature, I believe, is replete with the Jewishness of this coming period of time. We read how in Revelation 7, 4, how God super, supernaturally saves and seals 144,000 sons of Israel, 12,000 from each tribe, to become this massive missionary force upon the earth. And in Revelation 11, you read how the temple now is being measured. And how the Gentiles who will tread it underfoot for three and a half years. See, it's just so, it just has so much Jewishness to all of the context. In Revelation 11 and verse 19, there's the reappearance of the Ark of the Covenant in heaven. Um, and even in Revelation 11 and verse 3, you have the two witnesses, which, by the way, is again the Jewish requirement to confirm a testimony. And these two witnesses are supernaturally granted power to prophesy. For 1260 days. Again, how do you spiritualize that? And even the plagues in Revelation 11, uh, 6, for example, 
are reminiscent of those enacted upon the enemies of Israel in the days of Elijah and in the days of Moses. And when you look at Revelation 12, there's clearly the identification of the woman, which is to be the the, the nation of Israel, the the very nation that's consistent with the nation in, in the Old Testament history. And it's going to be persecuted by the beast during his diabolical reign. And even ultimately, when you think about it, the very final act here, this final conflict against the nation of Israel reveals that the great archangel Michael is going to defeat defeat, Satan. Well, who was Michael? Well, he was the great protector of Israel. You see, friends, I believe it is it is forced to somehow get the church in all of this. An eighth reason is Paul spent the entire first epistle to the Thessalonians pleading with them to be watchful, pleading with them to live expectantly for Christ's return, to come and snatch them away. He was constantly encouraging them and having them encourage one another with this wonderful hope. That the Lord is going to come. But, as you read 1 Thessalonians and even in 2 Thessalonians, you you, you quickly find that some of those people were very concerned about not only the persecutions that they were experiencing, thinking, oh my goodness, maybe maybe we've missed the rapture, we're confused here, what's going on? Uh, And not only that, what about our loved ones who love the Lord Jesus Christ but who have died? Are they going to miss out on the Lord's return? You see, they were confused here. Now, if the church was destined to go through the tribulation, why did Paul speak words of comfort and and encouragement to these Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17 and so forth? In other words, if the church was destined to endure such a holocaust, Paul should have should have led them in a song of rejoicing, saying, boy, isn't it wonderful that your loved ones have escaped all of this? But he didn't do that. Furthermore, many of the the Thessalonian believers were confused, as we read, by false teachers that had convinced them that somehow um, the sufferings they were experiencing and the persecution uh, was really consistent with the divine judgments associated with the day of the Lord which was an expression that always refers to a time of apocalyptic judgment in the Bible. So that's why Paul writes to them to clarify this in 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 1. And he says to the people, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, which I believe is another reference to the rapture, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. That is, the day of the Lord, which is the phrase found in older manuscripts. In other words, he is saying, Dearly beloved, The sufferings that you're now experiencing are not the apocalyptic judgments that signal the day of the Lord. It's it's not like you've missed the rapture here. And you see, my point with all of this is if, if the church was supposed to go through the tribulation, this would be no words of comfort. All of this would beg for relevance. You see, friends, I believe what Paul was telling them is what we all need to hear is we're not looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for Christ. Now, bottom line, I would therefore argue that this generation of Matthew 23 
Matthew 24, verse 34, will not include the church because it's been raptured, but rather it will be made up of those alive during the hard labor pains of the tribulation. So as we close this morning, we've seen the season of the signs. We've seen um, the, the, the span of, of, of the signs, or I should say the season of his return and the span of his signs. And finally, let, let's look here at verse 35 at the surety of his return. Notice what the Lord says. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. In other words, Jesus, as he has promised, is telling them, hey, you know, all of this universe, this earth, filled with all of its sin, this earth that I have subjected to futility, according to Romans 8, all of it's going to pass away. But my word's not going to pass away. By the way, I, I have to add this. I don't know if you saw it, but um, there's now some evangelical movement going on, some evangelical activism on global warming and the environment. Have you seen that? And I saw um, Rick Warren, uh, the guy with the Purpose Driven Church and all that stuff. I saw him being interviewed and um, he's basically part of this urging um, evangelical leaders um, to join with him and with others in combating this global warming. And, and friends, I, boy, I don't want to get off. This is another whole sermon, but uh, I, I cannot imagine anything any more misguided what a misguided endeavor. And I would say in all humility that that is based on, on something even beyond a superficial and shallow understanding of, of the Scriptures and God's mandate for the church. Do you, do you think I'm going to now start spending my time fighting global warming? And especially when I understand as I read the Scripture, dear friends, uh, th- this old world, this old universe is winding down. Do you realize that? It is winding down. We see that in the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy. In fact, the Lord has made it clear, as I said in Romans 8, that he subjected it to futility. And someday, as we read, for example, in 2 Peter 3.10, and this will be at the end of the millennial kingdom, he says, the heavens and the earth will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And... I just have to say that this is a disposable earth. Now, I'm all for keeping clean water and, and having a nice landfill and all that type of thing. But, but, but folks, as John MacArthur has said, if you don't like what, what, uh, what we're doing to the earth, wait till you see what Jesus does to it. And so I, I just hope that, that you don't, don't get caught up in this type of silly stuff. The mandate of the church is to preach the gospel of Christ, the Great Commission, Right. We want to see people come to a saving knowledge of Christ. And then along with that, we are to worship the Lord God. We are to be the pillars and the support of the truth. We, we don't have any kind of... I mean, our citizenship is in heaven. I'm not going to get caught up in all of this political nonsense. And besides, I'd have to get rid of my SUV and I don't want to do that. <laughs> So the Lord says here, with respect to the surety of his return, heaven and earth is going to pass away, but my words aren't going to pass away. In other words, what I have declared is going to happen, just as I have said. Dear child of God, what, what comfort we have in the, in the unassailable and unchanging sovereignty of a God who declares the end from the beginning. 
May all of us rejoice in the certainty of the promises that are ours in Christ Jesus. And be able to sing as I used to sing when I was a little boy. And Nancy, you, you will remember this too. And mom and dad at Bethany Baptist Church. We used to sing John Peterson's great old hymn, Jesus is Coming Again. And I'll close with just the, the, the one verse here. Marvelous message we bring. Glorious carol we sing. Wonderful word of the King. Jesus is coming again. And then the chorus went like this. Coming again, coming again. Maybe morning, maybe noon, maybe evening and maybe soon. Coming again, coming again. Oh, what a wonderful day it will be. Jesus is coming again. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the glorious truths that You reveal to us in Your Word. Lord, I pray that You will cause us to live consistently with them. May we live in light of Your imminent return. May we live with that purifying hope, knowing that at any moment we could face You. And Lord, I plead once again for the souls of those who still reject You as Savior. I pray that You will overwhelm them with such conviction that they will bow their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and cry out for that mercy that comes from Your throne of grace so rich and free. And even today, perhaps, will be the day that they experience the miracle of the new birth. Lord, we love You and we long to see You, but until that time comes, may we remain ever faithful to whatever station You have placed us in this great battle for the truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.